The Book of Isaiah in a weekend, <coughs> Mission Impossible. Uh, uh, the problem with Isaiah, same problem with the Book of Jeremiah, same problem with the Book of Ezekiel, they're just so big. And uh, because of that, uh, strangely, strange twist of fate, uh, they tend to be very underused. Uh, these books are so big, you would, you would have thought you could never miss them, but they often are missing from the teaching program of churches just because they are so big. Uh, the Bible study group, does it really want to enlist in, you know, 66 weeks studying the same Bible book? Or does the minister really want to begin a sermon series of 66 sermons to try to get through the book of Isaiah? So, so just because they are so big, they do tend to be underutilised, uh, which is a great pity. So we are going to rewrite history. Uh, we're going to look at the book of Isaiah. So, so uh, thank you for being courageous. Thank you for joining me on this mission. Um, now, all that's going to be possible is for us to dip into the book of Isaiah at... Uh, certain points and so I've tried to avoid maybe the chapters which sometimes are used for that purpose chapter 6 chapter 40 chapter 53 you know I mean so, so sometimes we we do get sermons on Isaiah and, and they often come at well-known spots in Isaiah so let's choose some others which are also representative and will give us a feel of what's happening in this uh, great book of Isaiah so we're going to look at chapter 7 Chosen partly because an attack on Jerusalem, it's got a lot of natural interest type thing. Uh, also because this chapter throws up some key themes. Uh, the theme of kingship, the king in the line of David, how hopeless the Davidic kings were, but the hope of a future king in David's line. No prizes for guessing who. Yep, Jesus. So the theme of kingship, the theme of the relation between God's people and the nations, because we've got an attack on Jerusalem by nations. Uh, the theme of faith and fear, which is a, a theme that uh, runs through the great book of Isaiah too. So let's, uh, let's look at chapter 7 and... See what's happening here. Yes, an attack on Jerusalem in the reign of Ahaz. So uh, a couple of kings have gone by. Chapter 6, well-known chapter, the death of Uzziah. Then we hear nothing about Jotham. But now we have Uzziah's grandson, Ahaz. An attack on Jerusalem by Aram or Syria. And Israel or Ephraim, the northern kingdom, ganging up coming south, attacking Jerusalem. That's what's happening. They came up against Jerusalem to wage war against it, but they could not conquer it. Now, do you notice what's happening here? We're actually starting the story at the end. We're already told, verse 1, that this attack was entirely unsuccessful. They could not capture it. Now, why do you do that? Is this bad writing? You know, kind of uh, not saving up the exciting ending, but we, we're told in the first verse how it all turns out. This great threatening army, and Ahaz so worried, and 
not trusting God and all his preparations, it was all quite unnecessary. Of course, the attack was unsuccessful. Now, what, what it does is it enables us to look at this crisis, military crisis, faith crisis, but from a higher perspective. We know how it all turned out. All those fears were unnecessary. All those preparations weren't, weren't, weren't going to be used. The attack was unsuccessful. So here we have Ahaz, who is the Davidic king. Uh, verse 2, the house of David is told. Aram Ephraim is in league with... Uh, uh, sorry, Aram is in league with Ephraim. So these two nations ganging up uh, against Judah. And... Uh, in verse 2 here, here is, as we would say in English, um, you know, Ahaz is shaking like a leaf. What a beautiful description of fear. The heart, his heart and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. He's a quivering, blubbering mess grip in the grip of fear. And this is a, going to be a passage where uh, we see the difference between fear and faith. Ahaz, descendant of David, brave King David, all these battles, all these victories, what has the house of David come to? That we have this quivering uh, king, Ahaz, oh how the mighty have fallen. Yes, fear and faith. That's one of the things our Bible passage is going to tell us. Uh, what's the opposite to faith? Please don't say doubt. No, no. The Bible never says that. What's the opposite of faith? Fear. Fear and faith. Jesus in the Gospels, Mark chapter 5, verse 36. Just one example among others. Uh, don't be afraid, only Believe the opposite of fear, the opposite of faith is fear, not doubt. I, I, we don't have to be guilty about our doubts. Isn't church supposed to be that safe kind of place where people can ask the questions, express the doubts that they've always had as they're trying to come to faith? in Jesus. So we, we should be a community, shouldn't we, when people can be honest and kind of share what they really think and feel so that those kind of doubts can be addressed and people's honest questions can be answered and so forth. Now the opposite of faith is not doubt but it's fear and Ahaz and his supporters are in the grip of fear. That's what's being said in verse 2. So the Lord, verse 3, tells Isaiah to go out to Ahaz. He's there checking on the city water supply. That's what's happening. The conduit of the upper pool by the highway to the fuller's field. He's checking because a, a, a long siege is in prospect. Have we got the resources, the water resources, to withstand that siege? And so he's out there checking what's happening, and, and uh, the Lord tells Isaiah to, to bring his son with a strange name. 
Gee, Christians do sometimes give their kids terrible names, don't they? I, I, could, I could tell stories, oh, particularly Presbyterian ministers. They're some of the worst. Hey, guys, just pray that you, you know, your dad's not a Presbyterian minister because you get the weirdest kind of Old Testament names and probably the Old Testament lecturer is going to be blamed. But I, I kind of avoided all that by giving all of my children non-Bible names. You know, I wasn't going to put my kids through that, you know, Zephaniah or, you know... Jehoshaphat or something like that but 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 yeah preachers kids they can get terrible names but he, he, he's one of the worst Sheer Jashub uh, imagine having to go to school with that name Sheer Jashub uh, a strange name believe me the only kid with that name because it was a symbolic name it was a name with a message uh, Isaiah's son, he, he was like a walking sermon because his name had a message. Now, in our English Bibles down the, bo the bottom, they, they give us uh, an interpretation. They, they don't get it quite right because the name means only a remnant will return. Only a remnant. A name with a message. Now, what is that message? Well, it could mean a couple of things. Only a remnant, only a small number of these two foreign invading armies who are coming down, only a remnant will return home. Maybe it's that. Or maybe it means only a remnant, only a small number of the people of Israel will return, come back to Jerusalem after the judgment that's coming upon the city because of their sin. Could be that. Or it could mean only a remnant, only a godly remnant, will turn or return to the Lord. Yeah, it's a name with a message that probably there is an, an ambiguity, a purposeful ambiguity in exactly what the message is because it all depends on what response will be made in this crisis. Are people going to fear, break down in fear, or, they are, or are they going to have faith? In other words, the name is either positive or negative. Threat or promise. Only a remnant will turn, return. It all depends on this response of faith. At the moment, Ahaz is shaking like a leaf. Instead of, yes, verse 4, it's a, it's a beautiful verse, isn't it, you know? My version says, take heed, be quiet. Though I like, yeah. Uh, be calm. Do not, feel, do not fear. Do not let your heart be faint. Always of saying, in this crisis, uh, Ahaz is meant to have faith. After all, what are you afraid of? Uh, these two smouldering stumps of firebrands, my version. In other words, they're like two sticks, you know. You pull them out of the fire, they're, you know, they're, they're hot, they're, 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 they're kind of, the, uh, the flame is there, but after a short while, the fire will go out. That's these two enemies, these two foreign kings. That's all they are. Afraid, afraid of the son of Remaliah, that's, that's an insulting way of talking about someone when you don't use their actual name. See, his name is Pekar. But Isaiah doesn't call him Pekar, he calls him the son of Remaliah. 
It, it's a mocking way of referring to uh, someone. You know, the Old Testament prophets were some of the rudest people. They knew how to be rude. It's that Sean McAuliffe, you know, mad as hell mocking kind of humour. You know, the, the prophets had developed that to a fine art. You know, talk about taking the mickey out of people, taking someone down, seeing the funny side of things. That, that was the Old Testament prophets. So that's what Isaiah's doing here. He's mocking the enemy. Uh, afraid of them, how foolish are our fears, how eminently sensible in every crisis for us to put our trust and faith in God. Yes, we as Christian people, we need to learn to laugh at our fears. Because we can have fears, we can have worries, can't we? Often it's just, they're, they're so foolish, what we're afraid of. Those fears might be very real to us. But we serve such a God, don't we? Uh, uh, and uh, we serve a, a God who is effective in every crisis of life. So he, here's a Bible passage encouraging us not to be afraid, but to have faith. Well, in verse 6, he quotes the enemies. As in the book of Psalms, if you're reading the book of Psalms, you know, David and all his enemies, often the enemies are quoted. We hear from their own lips what their wicked, diabolical plans are. Verse 6. Uh, let us go against Judah and terrify it. Let's, uh, let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as a king in the midst of it. So, so, so their threat is directed at the house of David, at Ahaz, get rid of Ahaz, let's set up a puppet king in his place, the son of Tabeel. This again is Isaiah's humour. You see, the, uh, the prophets had a great sense of humour. Um, our Bible version here, yes, son of Tabeel, the name there, notice again, son of Tabeel, it's a mocking way of talking about someone. But there's even more mocking going on because his name really was, well, uh, uh, yes, his name, uh, the, the English versions don't, don't quite do it because really it should be the, the son of Tabal. See, Tabeel is a proper name. It means God is good. So there's various Tabeels in the Bible. But the word that Isaiah actually calls him, he's the son of Tabal. Tabal means good for nothing. He purposely distorts Tabeel's name again for the purpose of mockery. Now, the Old Testament prophets love doing this. When they're talking about foreign gods, most of the time they purposely mispronounce their names to make them sound stupid. And foreign kings also, very often, the Bible purposely misspells their name to mock them, to take the mickey out of them. And that, again, is what Isaiah is doing here. What a ridiculous plan. That's their plan. End of verse 8, God says, well, this is what my plan is and we know which plan is going to come true. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken to pieces so that it will no longer be a people. So God here reveals his alternate plan. So that's one of the big themes of Isaiah, the plan of God. 
Isaiah's big picture. The book of Isaiah, it's a big book with a big picture because it's showing us the whole of human history. By the time we get to the end of the book of Isaiah, we've reached the ultimate end. History is finished. God's kingdom has come in, in all its fullness. Whose plan is going to be fulfilled? Not verse 6, but verse 8. Again, uh, how the chapter begins. We begin at the end. The attack, the threat, came to nothing. It was entirely unsuccessful. Jerusalem was safe. Ahaz is safe, not because of his faith. He didn't show faith. It's the plan of God. So this is one of the lovely things about Isaiah. It shows us the full plan of God. We can discover our part of that plan. When you look at Isaiah's big picture, uh, our fears are foolish and faith is the only sensible response in all the crises of life. So what is the response that's called for? End of verse 9, if you will not believe, surely you won't be established. The NIV, we had the NIV read, uh, if you do not stand firm... You will not stand at all because there's, there's wordplay happening here. The prophets love mocking people. <laughs> Another thing the prophets love to do is they love wordplay, you know, rhyming words and stuff like that because they're great preachers, you see. They've got a way, they're word craftsmen, wordsmiths. There's wordplay. If you will not stand firm in faith, you will not stand at all. Isaiah using wordplay, rhyming words, to make his point. In a crisis, you've got to have faith or it's not going to end happily. There's going to be tears. The necessity of faith. And that, again, is very much a theme that runs through the book of Isaiah, the theme of faith, of trusting God, here I am, Old Testament lecturer. I shouldn't have to say it, but I'd better. You don't have to wait to the New Testament to find out about faith. That the response that God is calling us to make is to put our trust in him. Now, the New Testament makes a whole lot of stuff clearer, doesn't it? Oh, yes, faith in Jesus. And because of what he's done and his cross and his resurrection. We have little hints of that in the Old Testament. So the New Testament kind of unpacks it, it fills it out, but it's here. In fact, it's throughout the Bible. And that's why some people call the book of Isaiah the fifth gospel, because Isaiah here is preaching the gospel, this chapter and very often in his great prophecy. He's the evangelical prophet because he's got the evangel, the gospel, the call, the summons for us to put our faith in God. And that's what he's saying, isn't it? If, if you do not stand firm in faith, you will not stand at all. In the goodness and kindness of God, notice that God through Ahaz offers him a sign to strengthen his faith. Having trouble believing in this crisis, ask for a sign verse 11 in fact he can ask for any sign he likes carte blanche 
be it ever so high or ever so low or anything in between. In other words, ask whatever you like. Any, you name it, you name the sign, I'll do it to strengthen your faith. But Ahaz has no intention of trusting God and so we have this hypocritical refusal to ask for a sign. Verse, 11, verse 12, Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. What a hypocrite. You know, kind of piously saying, oh no, no, it's wrong to test God. Well, of course it's wrong to test God unless God invites us to test him and that's what God's doing here. Test me. Ask for a sign. Remember in the Gospels in Jesus, people ask for a sign, Jesus will never give them a sign. And that, that's usually what is happening in the Bible. Don't ask for a sign. Trust, believe. But here, God, so very gracious, in this grave crisis, inviting Ahaz to ask a sign. And all he does is quote back to God, in effect, a Bible verse... Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, how it's wrong to test God. What a hypocrite. Because he has no intention. He doesn't want a sign, because he's not planning to trust God. He's putting trust in his military preparations, his water supply. His, uh, he's going to hire the Assyrians, we're told, in 2 Kings chapter 16, to come to his help. He's going to use all these human devices to handle this crisis. He's got no intention of trusting God. He Ahaz shows himself to be a rank unbeliever. And that's why in verse 11, notice, verse 11, when he's offered a sign, Isaiah says, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Verse 11, Isaiah gives him the benefit of the doubt assumes that he's a believer, ask for a sign to support your faith. Notice the difference then in verse 13. Is it too little that you weary men, that you also weary my God? Notice now Isaiah is saying my God, my God and not your God. Ahaz has shown himself an unbeliever. He's outside the circle of faith. In this crisis, he's not willing to trust God. So he, he doesn't want a sign, well, he's going to get one anyway. And that's what's said in verse 14. So Ahaz isn't asking for a sign, so God will give him one unasked for. Verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and, you, and she shall call his name Emmanuel. The Emmanuel sign. Now, do you see what this means? A sign for an unbeliever. A sign for someone who doesn't want a sign. It must mean in context, the Emmanuel sign must be a sign of judgment coming upon Ahaz because of his unbelief. In other words, the Emmanuel sign here, Isaiah 7, must be signifying more judgment than salvation. Christmas, we sentimentalise Christmas, don't we? Ah, oh, little baby Jesus coming. You know, Emmanuel, God with us. But here, it's a sign of judgment. 
you read the Christmas story carefully, of course, it's there as well. Uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 34, remember what was said to Mary, uh, uh, um, a sign, um, I better look up the exact wording so I get it right. Luke chapter 2, verse 34, um, yeah, this child is set for the fall and rising of many in Israel. The Emmanuel sign, yes, a sign of judgment on those who won't believe, but also a sign of salvation on those who will believe. The Emmanuel sign. And of Jesus, of course, who is the fulfillment of this prophecy. Virgin birth. A sign falling and rising depending on our response. Jesus. So it's always worth saying, isn't it? Church camp, here we are as Christian people, but not all may have decided yet on what they're going to do with Jesus Christ. It's either falling or rising, it's either judgment or salvation, dependent on our response, isn't it, to Jesus. Well, here it is here, Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 7, We've got Isaiah the prophet preaching the gospel. So here is Emmanuel. What does that word Emmanuel mean? Again, we often haven't got it quite right. Just as with Sheer Jashub up in verse 13, the normal suggested translation is almost right but not quite. Only a remnant will come back. Here with Emmanuel, the way the word is constructed here, it means God is with us, but there's a very clear implication and not with you. There's a negative here as well. Emmanuel, God with us, with Isaiah, and those like him who trust God. God is with us, but he's not with you. Ahaz, and those who like Ahaz, are not making the response of faith. So here's another significant name, a symbolic name, a name with a meaning, a name which has a message, Emmanuel. Is God with us or not? It is dependent on whether we have made this faith response which has been called for here. What it really means is that King Herod was probably a much better student of the Bible than a lot of people in churches. Oh, Jesus has come. Yes, I'll go and worship him. <laughs> Diabolical evil plan. He's going to kill Jesus. So Herod's very negative reaction to Jesus coming. Very, very sensible. Very, very biblical. If you're not a believer, Jesus coming. This is a threat. A threat to Herod and a threat to everyone who doesn't believe. Yes, as I say, Herod is a better Bible student than most. The Emmanuel sign, it all depends. God with us, that could be a good thing if we're a person of faith, but he's not with us, he's against us. We're facing God's judgment if we haven't made the response of faith. So that's that two-sided aspect of what's given here. This whole passage about fear and faith, well, because Ahaz is not willing to trust God, 
uh, judgment is coming. It won't come in the form of Aram, Syria and Israel, Ephraim coming down and capturing Jerusalem. It's going to come in the form of the king of Assyria, something even more frightening, something that has been anticipated since the end of chapter 5 where we're told about this foreign nation, unnamed foreign nation that's going to come along and destroy Judah. Now this is revealed, end of verse 17, the king of Assyria. And uh, look at how the uh, Isaiah expresses this judgment. So uh, we've seen how the prophets, but some of the techniques of how the prophets, they're very good at insulting people, right? Particularly foreign kings and gods, right? They're very good at insulting people. Uh, they love wordplay, clever use of language to give extra punch and impact to their message. The other thing they love doing is they love talking in word pictures. Word pictures, things you can see in your head. What's the judgment going to be like? Assyria is coming. What's it going to be like? Verse 18. It's like an infestation of bees or flies. You know, where you, you know, before fly screens and all the rest. You, you, you can't escape. They're everywhere. They cover everything. Inescapable judgment swarms of flies and bees what's the judgment going to be like verse 27 another word picture it's like being shaved from head to toe the bible versions here are very polite aren't they head to the hair of the feet or the legs that's a kind of euphemistic way of saying yes head private parts everything shaved head to toe because that's often what happened to foreign captives you, you were first of all stripped and shamed by having all your hair shaved off and then you were marched off to exile that's what's going to happen the apostle the, the prophets here using word pictures inescapable inevitable judgment that's what's coming upon the people of judah because their leadership Ahaz and so forth refused to, to respond in faith. And then the last part of our passage, more literally, what's going to happen to the land? Most people have been taken off to Assyria in exile. What's it going to be like? A depopulated land uh, where people will just live and depend upon a cow and two sheep. Where, where there was once agriculture, uh, vineyards, uh, people will just go hunting now because uh, with uh, population largely removed, normal agricultural activities can't take place. The land will revert to wilderness and so people will survive just with a couple of animals or they'll survive by hunting and so forth. And all of it is the consequences of unbelief. So what we have here is in this passage is... Here's Isaiah, the evangelical prophet. He's got the evangel, he's got the gospel, it's the message of faith. The same, things that are, uh, being, the same thing that is being said in the gospel, we see the Lord Jesus, are we going to trust him, follow him, or are we not? In the gospels we see people making very different responses to Jesus Christ, that's exactly what's happening here. In the letters of the apostle Paul who's often talking about faith of course he is 
uh, are we going to trust Jesus or not? So here we have the same message in the Old Testament. All hinges on faith. Just a couple of things before I finish. What's the opposite to faith? It's fear. And, and, and that means that faith often then is... Uh, how do you tell if someone has faith? Uh, faith shows itself in courageous obedience. We trust in Jesus, therefore we do what Jesus wants us to do in situations, in a crisis, even where faith is costly, it's courageous obedience. Well, if the opposite of fear also is not doubt, then again, we need to, in the church community, we need to be that safe kind of place where when people express doubts or they have awkward kind of questions or they say things that, oh, you know, we worked that out years ago. We don't jump on them like a ton of bricks. What are you saying that for? How do you think, why do you think that way? We give people an opportunity, don't we, to let some of this come to the surface so that doubts and questions and queries can be addressed. And they can come to faith too. Because that's the kind of the process, isn't it? What, what stops some people trusting is that they've got questions or real difficulties in the faith and they've never been allowed to ask those questions and get those answers and sort out those difficulties so that they too can trust and follow Jesus. So that, that, that's the part we can all play, can't we, within the church community to uh, allow people that process of coming to faith in Jesus. Well, there's a lot more that can be said. We're going to have a little study group time. That we'll, we'll start the next session just by, we might have a chance for a couple of questions or comments, right? So just about what we've done in this session. Thank you.